Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Paul Ricard, uh, of course, it joins me as my co-presenter. How are you, Paul? Well, I'm good, thanks, Peter. We had an interesting week last week with uh, a couple of tantrums from Donald and mm. uh, the Chinese sort of sticking it back up to Donald. I, I forget, uh, I read a brilliant article on the weekend, Peter, where I think you described it as... Uh, is a bit akin to a ping-pong match, is that right? <laughs> it's right. It's looking like a ping-pong match when you think about it, Paul. And thanks for the compliments. Very nice of you. You very seldom do that sort of thing. Yeah, when you think about well, it's it... It's my good luck Monday day, isn't it? <laughs> Donald came up with the, okay, I'm sick of you guys, 10% tariff on the, on the $300 billion worth of goods not being tariffed at the moment. Okay, Chinese wait a little bit. A little bit, and then they come up with the Robert De Niro option. If you're going to mess with me, we're going to mess with you. And what do they do? Devalue their currency. And then the stock market really didn't like it. And so, what's happened since then? Larry Kudlow, he's the uh, advisor, economic advisor to um, Trump. He comes out and says, "Well, we are going to do some more trade negotiations in September." See, it becomes like a ping pong mm. match, and then Donald comes out and says, "Well, hang on, I'm not ready to do a deal, <laughs> but I love this yet." And that's the best thing I've heard, uh, Paul, because it means he wants to do a deal, but he doesn't want to do it yet. And apparently, there are a few sticking points which seem quite reasonable. I've got to say. Yeah, look, I, I think this, as everyone has always said, this is going to take play out for some time. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, the thing that worries me from the US point of view is I always thought the Chinese have got more cards to play. And I think they proved that last week if, uh, mm. you know, Donald upped them and then uh, they came back and really stuck it to them. But, mm. uh, and then let go because they just wanted to demonstrate that they've got the power uh, in their controlled economy. Yeah. So. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but I know our, our first guest has also got some views on that because uh, he's from Fidelity, which, of course, is one of the biggest uh, fund managers in the world and, and yeah. one of the biggest operators out of China. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say, Paul, I didn't get to write about this, but I will follow it up. Peter Navarro is the trade negotiator for Trump, and he was interviewed on CNBC on Saturday morning, and the, and the first thing he said was, I'm bullish on the US economy and the US stock market. Now, if he thought that no deal was going to come, he couldn't have a, a positive view on the stock market. So I think a deal will eventually come. But uh, when it comes, it's in the hands of a very hard-to-read man called Donald J. Trump. Sure is. And he's got a few other sort of domestic considerations to worry about this week. So yeah. look, anyway, that, I'm sure that brings us to our first guest, Peter, as... Uh, uh, from Fidelity. Yeah, exactly right. Anthony Doyle is our first guest. I should say that later on the show, we will be talking to the uh, CEO of GoGet, um, mm -hmm. Tom Davey. And then... Uh, just explain the, what GoGet is, just for our listeners. Yeah, GoGet, you might see those little parking areas where a car uh -huh. is there with GoGet written on the side. Yeah. I've and noticed that. I've wanted the parking spot and it says, it's, <laughs> you can't park there, it's got a GoGet all over it. Yeah, so you say GoGet. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly the three-letter word, <laughs> is it? <laughs> and, I, and I think... It's a classic digital disruption business mm. uh, and people can just basically come along and, and open up the car using their credit card 
and uh, away they go. But and I think it's very, it's it's grown pretty rapidly. I didn't think it would be, succeed, but in all those areas where people find it very hard to park a car uh, where they mightn't have a driveway or some, or a garage. Uh, it's fairly popular. It's doing pretty well. And speaking of disruption, we've then got the uh, CEO from Nimble, Gavin Slater, on the line. Yeah, and Nimble is basically a payday lender. Started off as a fintech business, and they're trying to get into, or they're going to get into more conventional personal loans and whatever. So the transition from payday lender to a more conventional lender, and maybe one day a bank, should be an interesting tale, and Gavin Slater will share that with us later in the show. But without any further ado, let's go to Anthony Doyle, who's got one of the longest titles in the history of uh, finance, and I'll start off by actually asking him that question, Paul. Anthony, welcome to the program. Um, give us a title. Global Cross-Asset Investment Specialist. Okay, Paul. Did you ever have a title like that Look, in I've your organisation? titles, but that's one of the, the longer ones, Peter. So exactly. thanks for joining us, Anthony. Yeah, it just fits on my business card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but of course, the, the beauty of that is that means that you're not just looking at stocks. You can go across lots of assets trying to look for value. Absolutely. So uh, I recently returned to Sydney after 12 years in London and Dublin. Uh, prior to that, I was at Macquarie as an economist for five years. Uh, so I've got an international uh, perspective on things and uh, now talking to investors based locally in Australia about some of the themes that we're seeing. Okay. Fidelity. A lot of people know the name, don't know much about the history, just in a nutshell. So Fidelity International actually 50 years old this year, mm. the same year as the moon landing, as mm. you know. Mm. Uh, we opened our first office in Tokyo uh, and we've been in Sydney. Uh, well, our investment hub is in Sydney and we've been here for over 20 years now mm. and we run a whole suite of managed funds for investors ranging from domestic equities. Some might know the Fidelity mm -hmm. Australia Fund run mm -hmm. by Paul Taylor. Um, and then we've got China equities, uh, emerging market equities, India, for example, global equities. So real large exposure to growth assets, really. Okay. Now, you, let's talk about the, the, the big themes that you think are going to influence investing over the next, say, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, sure. So I, I mentioned that I've just returned from Hong Kong and Shanghai uh, this week. And obviously the, the number one risk and the number one theme that everyone is talking about is the trade tensions or, or trade war between the US and China. Yeah. Uh, a week ago, not many people were, were expecting the sort of tensions to re reassert themselves. But uh, China weakening its currency to through that key sort of seven level versus the US dollar, uh, had obviously agitated Donald Trump to some extent, and he's been tweeting a lot more. But people are really concerned about the impact that trade tensions might have on business investment and also manufacturing sectors. Uh, mm. And we will we will um, bear some of the crosswinds of that. Now they have, uh, of course, the currency's been weakening for some time. I mean, and obviously it's a little bit inflationary for for the Chinese economy. I mean, well, what's the view on in China if, at a investment level about the the weakening of the yuan? Well, uh, I think that uh, it was interesting being on the ground. And an example is a company like Huawei, mm -hmm. where sales of Huawei uh, mobile phones have spiked in China, uh, but over the, in the rest of the world, they've deteriorated. Mm. So there is that sense uh, that it versus the US that things could potentially become a little bit more nationalistic and that the Chinese Communist 
government and the, the People's Bank of China will look to support their economy in targeted ways, um, such as uh, the, the currency fixing that we see on a daily basis, uh, or internal stimulus measures, or supporting their banks and getting credit flowing throughout their economy. So there are, there are a number of ways that they can support their economy during this difficult time that uh, they're currently having in terms of the trade tensions. Mm. This, is, I think, is a, a critically important question that uh, a person like you walk, working for a big uh, funds management business has to get across. Do you think that Trump needs ultimately to get a trade deal to avert the possibility of creating a recession in the US and globally and then having a stock market crash rolling into his election? Do you believe that deep down he wants to get a result but he's just going to string it along as long as he can? So I've seen this sort of uh, argument play out uh, and I've seen a number of commentators uh, talk about this, mm. that China obviously wants, uh, sorry, uh, Donald Trump wants a roaring stock market leading into uh, the elections mm. next year. And he's managed to also engineer through pressure uh, on the US Federal Reserve lower interest rates yeah. as well, um, which is great for the US consumer uh, and particularly the household sector. Now, fundamentally, we think that the US economy is probably stronger than the consensus. And we don't think that the current trade tensions are enough to rock the US economy into a recession. So we think that the US economy, if it does avoid a recession, uh, and it's a soft landing that the US Fed are currently uh, seeking to engineer by cutting interest rates last month, then the stock market should perform well already. Now, the question is, uh, apart from that, put yourself in China's shoes. Do they necessarily want to do a deal before uh, the election next year um, to support perhaps uh, Donald Trump's ambition uh, leading into the election? Now, that's the great unknown. We don't know. We're not political analysts, uh, so we prefer to look at the core fundamentals. We think the US economy is relatively robust, particularly the US consumer, and we think that equity markets will continue to perform relatively well, uh, especially when you think about what's your alternative. And interest rates, rock bottom lows across the world, equity markets are looking increasingly attractive. So you mentioned, uh, you talked about the trade war. You said there were a couple other big macro themes out there. So what else is outside the trade war? What else should investors be, be, be worried about or concerned about? Uh, the big thing this year uh, has been global central bank easing of interest rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in terms of the US, the US dollar uh, being relatively flat and not, being, not rising to the same extent as it did last year. And that was a big contributor to underperformance in global equity markets, mm -hmm. particularly emerging market equities. So we've seen central banks hitting the, the easing pedal and, and most recently with the RBNZ, you know, our neighbours cutting rates by a shocking 50 basis points. No one had anticipated that, um, that extent. And then talking about potentially negative interest rates as well. So the big thing I think for, for investors and particularly Aussie investors with our own RBA cutting rates is thinking about how they're going to position their portfolios for the coming decade with interest rates at rock bottom lows. Uh, I mentioned I was overseas for a long time based in London. You know, the Brits have been dealing with this now since 2008, 2009 and interest rates are still only uh, three quarters of a percent over there. So increasingly, Aussies will have to look outside of cash, term deposits, 
uh, even short dated fixed income uh, and look at higher returning asset classes like Aussie equities, international equities, for example. And what about um, the outlook for emerging markets? I mean, how does uh, a lot of that seems to be currency related when the US dollar does well, you know, emerging markets sort of tend to not do as well and vice versa. I mean, is, is are you sort of bullish on emerging markets at the moment? Yeah, so uh, we're bullish long term uh, for some key structural reasons, mm -hmm. but also the next 12 to 18 months is one of our favourite asset classes, um, particularly Asia. So we say that the US sets interest rates for the world, uh, but we say that China sets growth for the world. Now, absent the, the trade tensions, which will wobble these markets, uh, in particular those markets that are uh, geared into the global export story or, or uh, our manufacturing units, uh, we think that fundamentally uh, Asian equities are cheap uh, and we think that there's a big technical move into these asset classes, particularly from large institutional investors that are seeking those higher returns. Uh, and with the, uh, the uh, US no longer, cutting in, or no longer hiking rates mm -hmm. and cutting rates, with the US dollar uh, likely to be flat uh, or slightly weaker um, as the, the Fed comes more and more into play, these assets look increasingly attractive and that will continue to, to be a, a bid for these risk assets so going a, forward. So a, a flat dollar is okay? I mean, it, emerging markets can thrive on their own. It's just, it's just when the US dollar seems to go up, people leave emerging markets behind. But I uh, mean, the problem is, uh, with a, obviously commodity prices are priced in US dollars. So when the US dollar is appreciating, many of these emerging markets, mm -hmm. like India, for example, is a net importer of oil. Uh, so those costs are rising on, on these, uh, these companies. Uh, and equally, on the fixed income side, a lot of these countries and companies have issued debt in US dollars, mm -hmm. but they raise uh, their interest payments or their revenues via the local currency. So if the US dollar is rising, it's be their debt's becoming more and more expensive to service, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's the issue. So the, the thing that got me last week was... The, the mere suggestion that China might engage in a currency war rocked the, the Dow Jones 700 points and the oil markets responded. Then it looked like the Chinese were not going to engage in a currency war but had simply adjusted their currency. And of course, then Larry uh, Cudlow comes out and says, oh, well, there will be meetings in September. We're looking at basically a big ping pong match. And when um, China gets into trouble, like with the currency um, change last week, it was like what I call the De Niro option. You mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. If Trump takes the 10% tariff to 25%, would you expect the, the Chinese to say, well, screw you, we're going to devalue even more? And that would worry me for in terms of the stock market reaction. What do you say, Anthony? Well, I th I'm really interested in the, the psychology of markets as well. So the RMB or the Yuan has been uh, weakening uh, for a number of months now. Uh, and it was that key level. I mean, no one really cared when it went from 6.85 to 6.9 to yeah. 6.9. Seven was it. Seven was the key level. And uh, I do anticipate that the, the Chinese growth objective is more important to its... Um, to the Communist Party and uh, those authorities in charge than uh, supporting uh, global growth. Mm, yep. So uh, they will do anything uh, within their remit or within their, their toolbox to support the Chinese economy. And if that means weakening uh, the yuan, then they will do it. So stock markets would not like it? No, uh, particularly uh, the more volatile uh, markets like uh, those stock markets geared into the Chinese growth story, like the Southeast Asian 
stock markets, but mm. equally the Australian stock market. You know, our miners are a big uh, proportion of our local market here. Mm. Uh, so the Aussie stock market might be rocked by that uh, as well to some degree. Uh, now that said, uh, that's not our base case at all. Mm. So we do think that sanity will prevail, but again, it's, it's, we're not political forecasters, we're not political analysts, so it's extremely difficult to, to analyze. So the best thing for investors to do is take these um, investments on a stock-by-stock -stock basis or market-by-market -market so basis. So finally then, from there, my, you might have a final question, but I've got one, Paul. Your view is that we can avoid a global and US recession, and therefore, if you're investing in the stock market, you don't have to be looking for the, the exits um, ahead of a serious stock market collapse. No, I mean, what I really advocate is uh, not getting caught up in the day-to-day -day, uh, conversations and media and press, but equally, but st sticking to your investment plan, uh, thinking for the long term, and equally, you know, what we're, as professional portfolio managers, what we're doing is we're continually reassessing our investment thesis, and if there are some companies that uh, start to look increasingly attractive, then we top up. And what we've been doing over this whole period of trade tensions is uh, increasing our allocations to those companies that we really like, with business models that we like, uh, that we know that will do well uh, through the course of time, and we always have a long-term uh, time horizon. We're going to ask what those companies are. Well, we're going to ask what assets they were, but what companies are they first? Yeah. <laughs> Our listeners uh, would love to hear in that. The, uh, so, well, what I was uh, specifically re referring to uh, was our global emerging market strategy. Yep. Um, so there are a number of companies in there geared to the Chinese growth story. One is a Chinese sportswear and clothing manufacturer called Li Ning. So Li Ning lit the Olympic cauldron mm -hmm. in the 2008 Olympics. He's their equivalent of uh, Don Bradman, really, yep. you know, mm. known as the Prince of Gymnastics, won three gold medals uh, in the 84 yep. Olympics. So yep. he runs and owns a company called, by his own name, Li Ning, and that's up 100% uh, over the course of the last year, 45% this year. Uh, we like an Indonesian bank called BCA, Bank of Central Asia, uh, which is India's largest private bank, uh, and uh, an Indian bank as well called um, HF, HCFC uh, as well, really best in class bank over there that are really geared into uh, the improving uh, demographics of these nations, but equally the rising wealth that we're seeing amongst the consumer and Western trends starting to develop amongst the consumer base. And, and just for Aussie investors who tend to be, I think we're all very, have a great hometown bias. Mm. Uh, you're a cross asset specialist and we all sort of, I think a lot of these programs we talk about having exposure to lots of most of the asset classes and looking for, for different things out of different assets. But right now, which asset class in the universe of the things you look at, do you like the most? If you had a, some extra money to allocate, what would you be putting it towards? Uh, as I said, uh, EM Asia, uh, particularly now, uh, you know- if, Emerging markets in Asia, right? Exactly, That's if you think about, uh, as I said, you know, if you think about the European debt crisis, mm -hmm. for example, Irish bond yields got to 14%, they're negative today, representing a substantial capital gain. So uh, 
these periods of volatility and uncertainty uh, are great times to actually invest, whether it be the subprime crisis or just after the great financial cri or the global financial crisis, European debt crisis, taper tantrum of 2015. Uh, so they, these do represent opportunities and volatility needn't be a scary element. Um, and often when investors are looking at their portfolios and total returns, being ultra conservative can be just as costly as being over invested in risk assets. I've got one last, last question, Paul. And I'm, I'm just thinking of our listeners. I'm thinking to myself, well, uh, Anthony, if a relative came to you, a really close one that you liked, and said, give me one Australian company that you like right now to hold for the long term, which one would it be? Uh, I have to say for the long term, I think that uh, you won't go far wrong with one of the big four Australian banks, um, given particularly the, the franking credit element um, and the fact that they, they pay out higher income. So uh, much has been said about the Aussie stock market only reaching all time highs uh, a, a couple of weeks ago after the, the GFC. But that's on a price basis. So if you look at a total return basis, it returned to the all time highs in 2013. Yep. Yep. So yep. I think, again, uh, I, I spent 16 years in bond and currency markets. So we always focused on the total return mm -hmm. of, a, of a bond rather than just focusing on the capital gains or the price. Yep. And I think that if you look at some of these banks, uh, they were wobbled a bit. Uh, due to the Royal Commission. Mm. They're a little bit soft because of concerns around the outlook for the Australian economy and the housing market. Um, but it can, could be a good opportunity now to, to look at some of the banks yeah. in particular. Yeah, and I noticed, Paul, that Combank has, has bought a rival for Afterpay. Well, bought into it, Peter, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Look, um, yeah, look, I think you're right. I mean, the, the accumulation index, the one we always talk about, it, mm. as you say, it's, it's, it keeps making new highs, right? So yeah. more than half the return in Aussie shares comes out of dividends. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. one of the that. strongest stock yep. markets over time in yep. the world. Yeah, yep. Anthony yep. Doyle from Fidelity, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, it's that time of the show when I like to tell you about my latest publication. It's called Join the Rich Club. And look, I know the title sounds a bit gross, but I have this funny view that if you get richer, you can actually help the people who you love and you care about. So I think it's kind of in your interest, if you've got a choice between being rich or poor, choose being rich and this book will help you get there. The, the um, price is $24.95 and you can buy it through www.switzerstore.com.au. Don't forget... Join the Rich Club. Well, one Aussie business that's been a success story is a company called Go Get. And this is a, a business that actually helps people uh, get access to cars without actually owning a car. And the CEO is Tom Davey, and he joins us on the program right now. So, Tom, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Peter. Great to be here. Tell us the history of Go Get. I must admit, every time I see Go Get, I do think about adding a, an expletive after it. So, um, <laughs> when you came up with that name, were you thinking of that? Uh, no, not exactly. I, I wasn't one of the founders. But the, the, the business has been around uh, for a while. I mean, it's funny you say that because, in terms of the name, my my six-year-old son Ben. He, when I first started working in the business, only just over a year ago, we were walking past one of the vehicles on the street, and he and he just looked at it and he went, "Ah, kind of go get, go, you know, you go get the car." And the, from that moment on, I knew the name was was actually a great one because even a six year old got got the idea. Um, yeah. But uh, the, <laughs> the business itself 
actually, it's, it's funny. A lot of people will, when I speak to them, they'll have seen the vehicles around, as you say, and, and I'll kind of say, how, how old do you think it is? Um, and a lot of people will guess around five years because uh, that's when there's been this real, I guess, um, explosion of growth and a lot of visibility of the, of the brand. But it's actually a 16-year-old business, and it's a, it's a great uh, Australian homegrown story. So mm. there were two guys, Nick and Bruce from Newtown, who basically were having coffee one day in a, in a coffee shop in Newtown and came up with this, well, they had this frustration for themselves that they couldn't find parking anywhere and they, the cost of a car were going to be high and then they were also concerned about the environment and all this kind of pollution and they knew they didn't need a car for full time. Uh, and they came up with this idea about kind of sharing one, not just between them, but with some friends as well. And so 16 years ago, they actually decided to, to create a company to do it. Yeah. Um, and it's done some strength in that. Yeah. In fact, I remember the very first one that bobbed up in Wallara, in, um, in Paddington Street, Wallara. And uh, I thought to myself, that's a good idea, particularly in places like Paddington and Newtown where there aren't very many parking spaces. So tell us about the growth of Go Get. Yeah, so since since then in, in 2003, it was a, it was a, a tough thing to, to get going. And with a, like a lot of these uh, entrepreneurial stories, it's kind of 10 years for overnight success. So the guys worked really hard. They had to, you know, it was pre-smartphone era. So it wasn't as simple as creating an app for that. It was having to think about all the logistics and everything from riding around on push bikes to delivering keys to people to, you know, paper-based logbooks. Um, so, so initially, it took a little bit of time to get going, but what was great is that actually the demand was there. They, they weren't trying to create the demand. There was a need that already existed. And so once people started um, hearing about it from other people, it grew through word of mouth. Um, it grew very quickly. And in the last few years, the last five years, the growth has accelerated significantly. So we, we started back in 2003 with three vehicles and 12 members, and we're now at 3,400 vehicles shared by 145,000 people. So, are they um, members or do they uh, sort of, what, what do they sign up to to sort of use your service? Yeah, then, yeah there's 145,000 members we've got um, and, that, and that's going quick, quickly. So, you just um, you sign up on one of the different plans, uh, either on the app or on the website, and then there's cars parked, uh, vehicles parked nearby, and you can just drive them by the hour. And a typical sort of plan, just for those that aren't familiar, I mean, uh, obviously, if you walk around the inner city, you, you see a lot of go-get vehicles around, but if you're perhaps out in the yeah. outer suburbs or you aren't familiar with it, what does a plan look like? So the uh, the, the different plans that you can have. Something yeah, like, what's, uh, what's a typical a, a plan that you might... Yeah. yeah, so you either have something if you're planning on not using us all that much, but every now and again, or you want to try a few different vehicles, um, there's a, a go-starter plan, which is has a $49 annual fee and then you pay by the hour um, all the way through to a go frequent plan which is for people who typically use us more often um, which is then a $30 a month fee and then a, a lower hourly rate. What we know and, and finder.com just recently did some analysis actually, some independent analysis is that you, you don't need if you're driving any any less than basically 10,000 k's a year, it, it's significantly cheaper than owning, a, owning your own car. Yeah, because it costs about uh, you know three or four thousand dollars just to have a car on the road, doesn't it? When you add in all the insurance and other costs that uh, you have to pay, so I guess this works for a lot of people who don't do a lot of driving. Yeah, exactly. If you don't, you know, if you're if you're driving to to work, say commuting every day, then it, that's not that's not what this is designed for. But if if you you know, so many people have 
either that second car, even a, even their, their, their own car, that just sits outside the house 99% of the time, doesn't get used, um, then this is a, a much better use of that money. And, and you normally just don't realise that you're spending it exactly because the car's sitting out there, it's appreciating asset on the street. And what's interesting is it's not just for individuals, so that's how this business started. And what it ended up morphing into as well was, and, and really kind of an adaptive strategy, was when some of the members said they were starting to use it for business needs as well. Right. So started off with started off with SMEs saying, actually, um, I had this one car or one van that I was using for work, but I've realized I'm, I can just use GoGet instead. I don't need to have this expensive asset and capital tied up to grow the business. And then what's happened since then is that then evolves again into much bigger businesses where if you think about businesses with, you know, some businesses have 100, 200 upwards um, cars in a, in a pool fleet that are notoriously underutilized, tying up a lot of capital. We've actually seen by businesses switching to using GoGet instead is that it's more convenient for their staff members. But we've actually seen some businesses um, realize as much as a 50% saving on their pool car top. Mm. Are you in other states? You started in New South Wales, but what's your expansion been like in other states? Yeah, so from a from a kind of a city perspective, yeah, we, we started in Sydney, we then very quickly into Melbourne, so we're, we're very strong in Melbourne. We're also in Brisbane and then Adelaide and Canberra, and it, it tends to be made those kind of major metro, metropolitan place, uh, base, but we have got an outpost in Orange where we, we partnered with the um, Department of Industry and we're working with them. Um, and we're in a kind of a few of the outer suburbs in a, in a couple of different areas. Now, I, I remember there was a go-get um, spot at Foxtel when I used to go and do my television show, and I used to say to myself, well, how do they get the government on side to give you a, a location like that? And, and obviously governments, local, I presume, and even state governments have supported you. So how did you actually petitioned them to get on board to help your business? Well, what, well that, that was a, a lot of work, I think, from, from the guys, but particularly with this real um, community and, and member focus. As, as I said, this was a kind of a demand that was out there um, in terms of people wanting to share rather than needing to rather than owning themselves. But what was interesting is once there was a bit of scale, there was the council, we were having really interesting conversations with the council because... The councils could see that if, if this was if this was going to work, then there would could potentially be really great benefits from the for the community because more people sharing means less people needed to own a car, which means actually there's fewer cars parked on the street. So, for example, now we then worked with council. They did some independent research. It's been actually researched quite a lot by different people around the world, which means that for every go get car you actually see parked on the street. There's actually 10 people that have decided not to buy a car as a result. That, that go-get cars are actually freeing up nine parking spaces. That's great for council, great for the local community, and it also go, helps to reduce overall traffic congestion. So you've got this double whammy effect. You've got a real benefit for the individual or the business itself and the benefit for the local community. And, and it was through kind of working with councils and kind of helping them understand that, educating ourselves, educating councils that they then really got on board because they saw this benefit. I think one of the researchers, a company called Philip Boyle Associates, called it like a, a magic potion and said that if you if you could have invented this, you surely you'd put it everywhere because it seems to solve so many problems um, so well. And, Tom, you mentioned that you're in uh, most of the major Australian capital cities plus Orange. Have you been able to export the idea overseas or have you taken it to other markets? 
Yeah, sure. Um, at the moment, there's there's so much opportunity here in Australia for us to do an even better job and continue doing that in other suburbs where we're not in. That's our, our real focus. So we're not looking overseas at the moment. I mean, we like to think that we either are one of, if not the best, pretty much car share operator in the world in terms of the, the density and the positive impact to the wider community that we're having. And so we're looking to develop that further and really work with our council partners, work with all the, the local communities to make sure that this has Australia has the very best car share in the world. And then we'll start to look, maybe potentially overseas. And what about listing? Do you consider that you're going to be a company that will list on the stock exchange one of these days? There's, we're always looking at kind of future options in terms of growth and, and how we would manage that. At the moment, it's not something that's, um, that's close on the horizon, but it's, uh, you'd, never, you'd never say never. All right. For, for, thanks a lot, Tom. That was great. Thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much indeed, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Switzer events are actually on uh, right now, coming up uh, next week. Unfortunately, Sydney and Melbourne are sold out. We do have some seats left in Brisbane, and that's on Wednesday, the 21st of August. If you do want to come along, I'd love to see you there. Go to www.switzerevents.com com.au We'll have some of the best fund managers in the country sharing their insights on how they pick stocks and why their funds do so well. So that's www.switzerevents.com.au Brisbane, Wednesday 21st of August. My next guest is the CEO of Nimble. Nimble started off as a digital disruption business in the fintech space specialising in payday loans, but it now intends to get into more mainstream personal type loans. So without any further ado, let's welcome Gavin Slater. Gavin, thanks for joining us on the program. Yeah, thanks, uh, Peter. Great to be here. Tell us about Nimble, because it's kind of going through a transition, isn't it? It is. I mean, Nimble's history is it started in 2005 by two sort of young entrepreneurs, and uh, essentially they built a one of, I would suggest one of the first sort of fintechs and, and disruptors uh, in the mid-2000s and built an online lending business as a non-bank lender and, and that's essentially what Nibble still is today. Mm. It basically was in the payday lending space, wasn't it, in those days? Yeah, so Nibble still is in the payday lending space and, and we can chat a little bit about that, mm. but um, we've come out and we've stated our intention to move out of the payday lending space and move it into more of a mainstream. Ultimately, our ambition is to turn it into a digital bank, but move into more mainstream consumer finance style products. And, and Gavin, is that because of uh, increasing regulation or is that a function also of just accessing, you know, customers who want to potentially borrow a little bit more and, you know, becoming a bit more um, mainstream in terms of where you take the bank? Certainly both of those reasons. I mean, regulation, changing regulation is one part of it and, and also, um, you know, accessing customers who want to borrow more and, and have more sophisticated uh, credit needs. But actually, the main reason is the level of disruption that's happening in financial services at the moment. And, and certainly, in, in all my years of being in financial services, I, I feel we have a once-in-a-generational opportunity around disruption. Uh, and that's taking many forms. Um, clearly, there's, you know, it's the aftermath of the real banking inquiry, but probably more fundamentally, it's the emergence of new technologies that are removing barriers to entry. Uh, the open banking reforms that mm -hmm. are coming, 
it's allowing smaller players to step into the industry and, and carve out a little niche for themselves and, and grow pretty profitable businesses as a result. So where is the money coming from to bankroll what Nimble does? So at the moment, I mean, we are a public-private company. So, you know, I have a set of investors that, uh, that support the company. Uh, at the moment, we're using our own profits to bankroll the investment that uh, we're putting into the business in the form of new platforms and, uh, and, and, and all the expenditure we need around pivoting uh, the business into new loan products and funding those loan products. Uh, but there will come a time in the reasonably near future where I will need to do a capital raise to support our, our growth ambitions. And just tell me about the current business and how you, you've got, you know, the number of customers has grown pretty quickly and you've had some very public media and advertising campaigns. What, what's the sort of customer looking forward and where would you like to be in terms of, of loans and size if you had to put some targets on the business? Yeah, so, you know, so at the moment, I mean, we, are, we do lend responsibly to a sector of the community that simply just doesn't have the discretionary cash to meet those unexpected events around car repairs mm -hmm. and rental bonds and, and medical expenses and, and those type of things. And, and so typically they're loans from anything from $300 to $5,000, uh, really ranging from around about three months to uh, up to about nine months in, in duration. Mm -hmm. Uh, where we are looking to move the business is into larger loans. So, firstly, you know, unsecured lending, five to twenty-five thousand dollars unsecured, risk-based priced. Uh, we want to get into auto loans, mm -hmm. uh, and over time, we have ambitions to get into the mortgage market and then broaden it out into transaction banking and, and deposit products. Mm -hmm. So, almost getting towards a, I won't say a bank, but is that is that because you might want to be? Is that where you want to sort of head towards in terms of uh, really catering for consumers across all their? all their potential needs? Yeah, ultimately, I mean, our ambition is to turn Nimble into a digital bank, mm -hmm. you know, like some of the others that, that have popped up uh, uh, more recently, but really carving out a niche for ourselves and so not a bank for everybody. I mean, you know, we're certainly targeting the millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the reason for that is, we know, you know, history shows already that, you know, millenn millennials have a higher propensity to switch. They have a higher propensity to be multi-banked. Uh, certainly in a recent Ernest & Young report, uh, they estimate that millennials make up about $15 billion of the economics associated with the financial system or f banking system, and that's projected to grow to you know, around about $27 billion over the coming years. So the, certainly we feel the economic opportunities there to support someone like a Nimble. And how do the, sort of the government and the Royal Commission, we've had ref suggestions around things like open banking, and uh, just explain what that is and how a company, yeah. a fintech like yours, can benefit from a, 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 this reform called open banking. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, the open banking in the simplest form is, is uh, access to customers' data, of course, with the customer's approval to mm -hmm. do that. In some respects, Nimble's been operating in an open banking environment uh, already. And what I mean by that is when we make our lending decisions, a customer applies online, and as part of that process, they have to put in their bank details, and we scrape through a third party 90 days of their transaction banking information. Right. And we have pretty sophisticated algorithms that allow us to see all the income mm -hmm. and all the expenses and to delineate between what we deem to be essential spend and discretionary spend. And we work out their daily free cash flow. Right. And that's how we make a lending decision. Uh, open banking means we won't have to go through a third party to do that. Uh, we'll be able to access that information from the banks directly if the customer you know, gives us And I presume that information will be longer and also be more reliable than, yeah. than what you're currently getting access to. Is Absolutely, and it could be more dynamic. So yeah. as we're moving into larger lending transactions, we will be scraping 180-day 
costs mm -hmm. of transaction banking information, as an example. Um, but you know, right now we ask a customer to put in just one primary bank account. You know, under open banking, we'll get access to all their information. And I mean, all if you look at successful digital, you know, companies today, they really centred around their business model. People talk about a platform strategy, uh, and which is fundamentally underpinned by data and how you use customer data to you know, uh, drive revenue generating opportunities or new products or features or something that benefits the customer. It seems to me what we're seeing at the moment with all the digital disruption, the fintechs and whatever, is a lot of variety when it comes to loans. You know, we've got even Alec Baldwin doing ads on television for loans. And older people, not millennials, be saying, but the interest rates are so high, right? But I know you guys can explain simple facts are there are some people who can't get banks uh, loans from banks and therefore they go to the other lenders. And you seem to be doing okay. People, younger people and business people who can't get uh, loans from banks are prepared to pay higher interest rates. But there seems to be a chunk of the market not being looked after at the moment where it seems to me one day it should. And that is retirees are getting 2% yeah. Yeah. Um, depo term deposits. Do you ever envisage a day where you guys might be able to pay 4% for term deposits to older people and then lend the, mo lend the money out at 10, 12, 13%? There's a pretty big margin there, but you'd have yeah. to have a pretty good track record. Yeah. Or, or how do you become a deposit yeah. taker? Yeah, Peter, I'm delighted you asked that question because that is absolutely one of the primary reasons why we want to get a banking license. Mm because we do see there's an opportunity for us to um, have a deposit account and in fact paying four, five, six percent up to $250,000 because fundamentally it's guaranteed by the government. Mm. So from a retiree's point of view, they know they're capitally secure. Yep. And then that enables us to on-lend that at 11, 12% based on the risk profile of the customer, based on the duration, because that also drives you know, how much you charge. Um, and, you know, uh, and so, the retirees get a better outcome mm. and we're able to, and those deposits help us support our business and where we want to go in terms of our lending book. Mm. Well, you've come from a big bank. Yeah. Why is it difficult for a bank to do that right now? Um, I think Tough fundamentally- question, but I want no, you to answer it. <laughs> well, I, I think it's fundamentally around banks trying to drive a, meet a particular hurdle around return on equity, mm. you know, and it is all about profits and, yeah. and earnings expectations. I mean, banks, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest challenges the big banks are having at the moment is what you call the deposit floor, mm. you know, because traditionally when interest rates come down, you know, on the, on the lending side, you know, on banks on the borrowing side, they would just pay savers less. But there's a point below which that deposit floor, they just can't go. Uh, and therefore their margins get compressed. But it has fundamentally all been about margins because banks have these huge balance sheets. You know, if you've got $250 billion or $500 billion of lending on your book, you know, one basis point of margin compression has a significant impact on, on earnings and, and banks work hard to protect their margins. Mm. So what are the next steps for, for Nimble? I mean, you say you're going to go getting out of payday lending and you're moving in towards uh, more consumer finance, things yeah. like uh, car loans. Is that sort of... This is going to happen in the next sort of six to twelve months. What's the sort of time frame for Nimble and its growth plans? Yeah, it's pretty uh, imminent. Um, so we are in the final stages of testing. Uh, we'll be in market later this year with a risk-based priced mm -hmm. personal loan, both unsecured, and we'd like to then follow that 
as well later this year with a secured auto loan. Um, part of our strategy as well is to go from being what I call a mono-channel, being single-channel only business to consumer where they come to us via nimble.com.au uh, to building our channel partners, mm-hmm. so in the education sector, car loan sector, health sector, uh, as some examples. Uh, into next year, um, we are working on a product to substitute the current payday lending loan. I mean, one of the things we're really passionate about, and it's it's certainly changed my perspective coming into this industry where, to be perfectly honest, when I was working at uh, my previous large bank employer, I was quite judgmental about the payday lending sector. And as I got into it and understood it more fully, uh, recognising there there does exist predatory lenders, and I don't condone that at all. And there's people like Nimble that are responsible lenders, and there's a sector of the community that has a need and needs to be looked after. And our ambition is to continue to look after them, but with lower interest rates. And in order to do that, I have to lower my cost of capital. Mm. Yeah, well, Paul and I have come across um, lenders in this space, Mm. and we were probably a little bit cynical towards them as well. But there are, uh, as been explained to us, classic kinds of people who need these kinds of loans and can't get them from yeah. a conventional bank. Give us an example of, yeah. of, of a person who you think yeah. is worthy of, say, a, a five or a $10,000 loan, yeah. but can't get it. Yeah. So, you know, if I look at our customers, I mean, the, you know, uh, the maximum they tend to earn is around $50,000 a year gross. Uh, many of our customers hold down two jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are employed by some of the, the largest corporates in Australia in, uh, in retailing and indeed in government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, we don't lend to people that are unemployed. We look for uh, patterns of gambling and we don't lend to them. We only approve 15% of people that apply. So our approval rates are, are pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. But importantly, the purpose of the loan. So um, if I had to give you the top three categories, people borrow from us because they're moving home and they need to put down the bond on the house before mm-hmm. they get their other rental bond back. Uh, car repairs, so we've done over 120,000 of those. We've done 80,000 loans for car repairs. We've done just uh, 50,000 loans for medical expenses. So those are the type of people that we lend to. So they have a real need. It's not about instant gratification. Mm. This is about fulfilling a need and they simply mm. don't have the discretionary cash to cover it. Okay, Gavin, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. Well, Paul, you're an ex-banker. What do you think of Nimble? Look, I think it's got a really interesting prospect, Peter. I mean, there's certainly a market for it. And interesting to hear, look, just the type of people they, they currently get get to. I mean, mm. look, the banks don't service them and, and we need people like Nimble to step into that space. So I think competition's got to be good yeah. longer term for the banking industry and the finance industry. Yeah, and I think the important point is if a, a institution like this is involved in responsible lending to people who need it, great. But we do need to crack down on, on the predatory lending in this space. Yeah, I think you... You've underlined the word responsible lending. It's it's really, really important. Yeah, without a doubt. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.